All right, guys, let's get started. We're uh, running a little bit late. Uh, today, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sam Galvagno. Uh, Dr. Galvagno is a, uh, received his DO at New York Medical College, uh, got a, uh, anesthesia, did his anesthesia residency at Brigham Women's up in Boston, followed up with a critical care fellowship at Hopkins across, the, across town, and as uh, so the that's not enough, gets a PhD at, at Hopkins as well. Um, his very productive career and an excellent educator, and we're happy to have him here. So thanks, Sam. Okay, well, once again, it's my honor to speak to all of you, and I apologize for the fellows I haven't met yet. I think I've met a good portion of you. Um, so a uh, little bit of a pinch hitter today, because uh, one of our lecturers backed off, but again, I. Always am eager and willing to step up uh, to contribute to the Maryland CC project. I don't know about you guys, but I listen to all these lectures working out. I mean, all, it's one of my top three podcasts. I think the stuff that you're getting through this series is absolutely phenomenal, from the stuff that uh, Dr. Murthy does to the stuff that you know Dr. Scalia did a couple a week or two ago. I think this is really high yield stuff. This talk, uh, again, being a pinch hitter here uh, to kind of fill in and, and fill some of the gaps in the schedule that happened at the last second. Some of this, I think, is what Dr. Scalia talked about. I'll try to put this together as a paradigm that maybe you can use in your practice. This is something that myself and one of my colleagues have been talking a lot about, and we're, we're writing this up as kind of a review paper to help people understand, and so we can understand, endpoints of resuscitation, at least in traumatic shock. And I'll, I'll argue that this is also probably applicable to just about every other shock, just like you heard Dr. Scalia say, what, a week or two ago when he gave his talk. So to start off, uh, we'd like to talk about some general resuscitation patterns. You've already gone over this, so we'll go through that pretty quickly. Focus on this paradigm, which I've referred to, we refer to as building the pyramid from the top down. And I'll explain what we mean by that. And we'll talk about oxygen delivery. I think that's a really good thing to just review. Uh, I just came back from a great ECMO course, and I don't do ECMO here, but I, you know, uh, learning more about that technology is, uh, this is a critical thing that you have to think about with ECMO and, and advanced modality. So I think that's a good review for today. And then we'll talk about some of the physiologic endpoints, some of the evidence base for them, uh, a little bit of discussion about how we can use lactate and SCVO2 to our advantage, and we'll go from there. I don't have any disclosures. I'm a reservist, as I think you know. I do have DOD funding, hopefully some NH funding soon coming through. Okay, so when we resuscitate patients, did you see that? We resuscitate patients, we don't want that to happen, right? And likewise, we don't want this to happen. That means go in. okay. So, we don't want to open our parachute too soon and get sucked out of the plane, but we also don't want to open our parachute too late. So when we're resuscitating patients, this is the art of doing this. You don't want to stop your resuscitation prematurely. Likewise, you don't want to over-resuscitate patients. So that's really the whole theme here that I hope I can convey to you in the next 30 minutes or so. You've seen these curves. If you haven't, I think they're uh, somewhat self-explanatory. Whenever you get a graph, again, for board exams and stuff, you always want to look at the y-axis and the x-axis. In this case, oxygen delivery on the left, and then over time, 
we have our shock curve. So we're kind of falling below and behind on our oxygen delivery. We resuscitate, achieve hemostasis, and we're looking good. We're right where we need to be in terms of oxygen delivery. This is kind of the snapshot in your mind where you want to be, right? In terms of uh, maybe some uncompensated shock that we're getting behind on, maybe we achieve hemostasis a little late, but we get there, we resuscitate, and then we overshoot a little bit. And that's, that's sometimes okay. We don't want to overshoot too much, though. All right? And then we don't want this to happen. We don't want to come right underneath the line, kind of skim the treetops, and then just crash and have the patient go into multiple organ failure. And this is really, even though hemostasis may be achieved, we don't want to fall behind with our endpoints of resuscitation, or we can use the endpoints to ensure that this doesn't happen, hopefully, hopefully. So inadequate resuscitation. And this is just not doing anything. This is just, uh, just giving up. So we, we don't do that here at Shock Trauma, as you know. All right, this is another graph that uh, has been depicted in several publications. We did a, a review. I didn't give this to you in the notes, but I can happily email to you uh, some endpoints in ICU patients for traumatic shock. But there's this concept of oxygen debt and deficit that we talk about. And when you have a debt, that's something we need to get, again, on top of quickly. And when you have a deficit, that's when you can really start to getting into trouble. And if you really let that go too far, you get into a, a, a section on this graph where you really are in a state of irreversible shock, as we call it. We see this at shock trauma quite frequently on, in the true. We see patients come to us that are transferred. Maybe they tried to resuscitate them in an outside hospital, didn't quite get on top of that, didn't maybe have the resources to do that. And they got to get to us too late, and we wind up occasionally with irreversible shock. Uh, just no matter how well we try to resuscitate, we're just way, way too far behind on this oxygen deficit. So that's really, I think, the key with endpoints is in terms of the definition of shock, inadequate perfusion and oxygenation, this is really what we're talking about. Okay. There's this pyramid that's described in a very good article. I really, and I really, I'll try to send this to Suzanne because I think this is a really good article. That It's very concise. It's only about three or four pages. But this is a new paradigm shift, I think, in critical care medicine. You know, we rely on vital signs. So they have a pyramid here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invert this pyramid in a second. But they talk about vital signs. Then we start getting more at tissue perfusion. And then finally, ultimately, we want to really focus on individual organs, right? So this is, this is kind of our pyramid of how we, we titrate our therapies towards, toward individual organ th uh, perfusion. And you'll notice here the map here is very low. It's 45 to 50 in hypotensive resuscitation, well-accepted practice at this institution. Whole other talk um, that we could do. Uh, but assuming that you have an appropriate indication for that, I would argue, though, that really the way we talk about it is a little bit different. I mean, I would say that we throw this on its, on its head a little bit. It's still the same concept. What Dunster is getting at and what a lot of people are getting at is the microcirculation is where the money's at. Vital signs are unreliable. Um, they are the first thing we have. We'll talk about that as the tip of our pyramid that we're, when we talk about this. But really, we want to start getting at organ and microperfusion. So here's what I would propose. Or here's what we would, I'd say we, because there's several of my colleagues. It's a, a different pyramid. And you want to build this from the top down. We have to start with vital signs. I would encourage you to think about shock index. That's something we're going to have, hopefully, displayed a little bit better in the true. It's just one more, it's not something you're going to be able to calculate the bedside, but, but it kind of makes sense. Um, 
and that is uh, just a way to kind of a composite measure of both heart rate and blood pressure. But really then the second tier of that pyramid is all about DO2. This is just a fancy way to parse this out a little bit. So I'll talk about that again as a review. You know this stuff. And then finally getting into, and there's a lot more that could be, that could constitute this base. But the things that I'll focus on are things that are easily accessible for us, lactate, O2 extraction, we'll talk a little bit about SCVO2, and then of course coagulopathy, the TEG, we, you know that we're big fans of that now, and some other individual biomarkers. So that's the base of the pyramid, again addressing the microcirculation. So you start with the vital signs, ensure oxygen delivery, and then think about microcirculation. I think if, if we can conceptualize this pyramid in our minds, this gives us an organized approach to resuscitation. And so this is the paradigm that I'm going to propose today. In terms of upstream and downstream endpoints, that's talked about as well in the literature. I would propose that for the most part, this is what we're talking about as upstream things that we're delivering to the patient. And then it's not this clearly delineated. There's a lot of overlap. But in terms of microperfusion, I think looking at um, some of these downstream indices is really kind of what's classically been described. So the first question we have to ask, of course, is um, how do we know where we are, right? We have vital signs, ATLS, we teach this. Uh, this is all very important. I would, I would, I would emphasize, I think, um, I don't even think I listed it up there, I think cap refill is really important. There's actually some good data that there's very high correlations with cap refill and tissue perfusion. So that's something I always check nowadays. I uh, was taught way back as a paramedic to check for that, kind of forgot about it for a couple of years, and now coming back to it. And some of our tissue oximeters are probably nothing more than fancy devices that are giving us an objective measure of what cap refill kind of is. This is the, uh, the classes that we have to learn, and uh, the classes here are probably not as strong as we would have traditionally taught when we teach ATLS. This is a study where they looked at over 100,000 patients, and the interrelationship between these variables is not as robust as we thought. There's lots of confounding factors. What are some confounding factors that confound vital signs that we see in our trauma population? Yeah, OK, absolutely. Anxiety, pain. Um, how about if they're on beta blockers? We're not going to have tachycardia. What if they're elderly? Um, what if they can't mount a tachycardic response? What if they're young and they're in compensated shock? The majority of patients show up in compensated shock. So they're not going to have always these classic vital sign changes. So we have to look for other things, more subtle signs to get at that microcirculation, which could be in jeopardy. The classic patient that comes in is someone that's got normal vital signs. EMS gives a report of a pretty serious mechanism of injury. They get here, their vital signs are completely normal, their lactate's like 5.2. And we're like, okay, something's going on. Um, so we gotta figure that out. The majority of shock is compensated or occult, and that's a major point. So again, getting back to that triangle, that's where we wanna start thinking about this. So in terms of upstream indices of perfusion, again, this all relates to DO2, all these indices. So I think just quickly to review this, I know you know what DO2 is, but this is something you'll definitely need to understand for board exams, but also I would argue at the bedside because this, again, from everything as simple as a straightforward resuscitation to ECMO, you really need to think about oxygen delivery and how you're doing that, what parameters you can manipulate. I mean, this is the formula, and I think you all understand that. Um, you know, and as a review, 
hemoglobin gets you an awful, awfully good bang for your buck. Um, the 1.34 is the binding of oxygen to hemoglobin in mils per gram, and then you've got the 0 0.003, which is just your dissolved oxygen in blood. So just as a review of what those numbers mean, and your SAO2, of course, is the amount of hemoglobin that's actually saturated with oxygen. This is critical. This is critical for you to teach to our residents and interns. I know you know it, but this is one of the things that we have to know in critical care. Uh, and then ultimately, you're going to multiply that times your cardiac output, and then a factor of 10 to, to get to uh, where you need to be. In terms of the cardiac output, that's something you've had Dr. Murthy's talks. I mean, we can get cardiac output now in the vast majority of patients. I'll show you some of her data in just a second. But I'm, I'm pretty confident in getting cardiac output without having to put a PA catheter in any, anymore um, in, in the majority of patients. But what constitutes cardiac output? Stroke volume is really key. Heart rate, obviously, we can get. These are the three factors that we get out of stroke volume. So just my point with all this is I know you've had lectures on this and you understand it, but I think a hemodynamic assessment in and of itself is an endpoint of resuscitation. If you're meeting your stroke volume targets, you're, you're, the tank is full, um, you know, and they're able to mount a hemodynamic compensatory response, that is one of several endpoints of resuscitation. It may not be targeting the microcirculation as we would like, but it is an endpoint in and of itself. And I think people jump right to lactate as an endpoint. If you read all the papers that are out there, very few start to get at this. Some just focus on this, though. So it's, it's, it's in a spectrum. And that's what I would encourage you to think about when you think about VO2. All right, in terms of some other upstream endpoints, this is a laundry list here. And these are all things that are easily accessible. I'll talk about this in just a second. I really think for preload, I think echo is the way to go. And getting a free exam is absolutely the way to go. Afterload, there's different ways we can get at that. Dynamic central arterial elastance is something that is a little bit perplexing, but it's really just the pulse pressure variation divided by the stroke volume variation. So if you want to be fancy and calculate that, there's been a couple papers on it. It's talked about here in this, I think, Perel's paper, although he's more of a PVI guy. That's another thing we don't use here. But these are all things, depending on where you're at, what non-invasive devices you're using, or echo parameters you're using, can be derived at the bedside very quickly. Again, to ensure hemodynamic, uh, hemodynamic endpoints that you're looking for. Okay. Um, I, I don't need to preach to the choir here. I mean, I'm a, I'm a CVP hater. Uh, I just, there's indications for it. Nothing's absolute in critical care. There, I, can, I can think of a couple, but for this talk, I think relying on CVP, and we still have people come to the bedside and tell us, transduces CVP, thinking that that's an appropriate endpoint, and it really isn't for the majority of patients. It's a static index, and I think watch out for that in terms of dynamic versus static indices. That's a common question that we're looking at now on boards. So I don't think this is a really good endpoint, um, but the Merrick paper talks about that. This, this is, I think, more where, to, where we're going, and this is, this is a bit dated now. It's 2012 based on stuff up to that point. So we're in 2015, and we've got several, again, several papers by Dr. Murthy and her team that really are showing the, the validity of TTE in this population. And um, that, indeed, is probably our highest ROC curve, and we can get really good parameters off that in terms of sensitivity and specificity for assessing intravascular volume. Uh, and then the minimally invasive monitors, you've had talks or will have talks by Dr. Sikorsky on that, I'm sure, and I'll leave that to him. Um, they're good, but there's limitations, and you need to know those limitations. Does anybody have any idea of what some of those limitations are? If you're going to put a flow track on somebody, what do you have to be careful about? What population has that been validated in? 
Have you have they had the talk by Dr. Okay. Ah, okay. Yeah, great. Okay. Dr. Sikorsky uh, or someone else who, you, we use a lot of these devices here. It's about 185 bucks a pop to throw that on a patient, but we use them. Um, they've been validated in populations of patients that have not been on pressors, not been in AFib, on 8 mils per kg tidal volume. So kind of more for intra-op patients that we're used to taking care of. Not necessarily the patients we might have to take care of that are meta-unstable. So you just have to be careful. There's still parameters. I think he would argue that I would argue may have validity, but I, my bias, again, is more towards actually looking right at the system and um, interrogating it with ultrasound. These are, again, these are lists of dynamic indices. I think everybody, everybody's pretty comfortable with this, the difference between dynamic and static indices. These are things you can assess um, in real time. I mean, you could go as far as putting a TE probe in somebody. Some places do that and leaving it in for 72 hours. It's expensive. Um, but serial exams and seeing this in real time is what we refer to as functional hemodynamic monitoring rather than just getting a snapshot of where we're at. This is the algorithm with the flow track, and I won't steal the thunder from Dr. Sikorsky, but there are algorithms that I, most of us would argue the SVI may be one of the more valid parameters to look at. Um, but again, there's limitations. But, uh, and I have no, as a, so I have no disclosures. I don't own stock in them. Some, some people here do. I don't. I don't have any stock in FlowTrack or Edwards. And this is just a thing from Barnes Jewish where they do use this. They do use this as a way to look at endpoints for resuscitation, fluid challenge, responsiveness, volume responsiveness, all of which, as I've hopefully imparted to you, are indeed endpoints. And I'm not going to steal Dr. Murthy's thunder as well. She's in the, I see her in the audience. But she's had some great talks. You're going to be well-trained. You're going to leave this fellowship. Uh, and I would, I would encourage anyone who's listening to this online to also pursue ultrasound training. I've had to do it on my own dime, unfortunately, because I didn't know Sarah at the time. But I really think this is where a lot of us are going. Um, just today in the unit, had a patient about an hour ago where this changed the way we were thinking about our next move on this patient, and a very sick patient who um, actually has a combination of hemorrhagic and possibly early septic shock. So very uh, important stuff. This is one of her papers and that uh, she's published where volume status, you can get these answers from patients. And it's probably even higher now, right, Sarah? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you're way up there with your ability to get good data from these patients as you've evolved this program, gotten better machines. Um, so that's pretty huge to me. Um, so that's the question. What questions can you answer with it? A lot, I think. So. Uh, and this is the way she's broken it down and described it. And I'm, I'm just putting up this here for completeness sake. But, you know, the hummingbird versus the dysfunctional. And that's the way I've, I've really tried it. She breaks it down by function, SVR, and volume status. And more to come on that. Uh, I encourage you to really listen to her didactics. This is just an example. I, you've seen this. I don't probably even need to show this. It's the vasodilated or really the ventricle is just not, I mean, so this is an endpoint. You know, we're not where we need to be in our oxygen delivery because we don't have, um, our stroke volume is not insured. So that's about all I was going to say for kind of some of the upstream indices um, and then try to focus more on some of the downstream indices because I think this is where really, where a lot of people's interest is in terms of the labs that we're going to be getting and how to interpret them appropriately. And the one thing that I hope I, is an advanced crowd, so I, one thing I hope you can take away from this is the relationship between lactate and SCVO2. So I'm going to show you a chart on that that I think can maybe help you in your practice and thinking about it, because I know it's helped me 
uh, as I've evolved my thinking about this. But microcirculation is where it's at. But we don't have any, really any great direct ways to look at the microcirculation. There are a couple things that are out there, which I'm going to show you, that are not quite prime time, but getting closer. But we have to rely on stuff like mixed venous, lactate, maybe an AVCO2 difference. These are things we can get at. This is the classic SCVO2 diagram. Um, eminently testable for boards. They may ask you this formula, which unfortunately is kind of small here, but I think everybody understands this relationship and how we can modulate that by increasing the hemoglobin or modulating the cardiac output. I will, I will say one last thing, though, about all of this um, before really getting into the, the lactate and stuff, and that is hemoglobin does give you a pretty big bang for your buck in terms of oxygen delivery, but don't forget about your SAO2. I think a lot of times we jump to the hemoglobin and forget that if we really want to create better oxygenation, you can crank up the oxygen a little bit. That may make a little bit of a difference, and that's an easy thing to do. We do talk about hyperoxia and the harms, the attendant harms, but we're talking about really unstable patients here that were in the acute stage of resuscitation. So that may be something you need to think about if you're not achieving your targets in terms of oxygen delivery. It's an endpoint. The oxygen extraction ratio I don't think is talked about enough, and I've, I've really been trying to follow the literature on this. You'll see that the two earlier studies were, I think they really looked at this in nice animal models. These are dogs that they bled down and looked at the cardiac performance and looked at the levels of lactate before the lactate would rise. And very robust animal model. But looking at an O2 extraction ratio when it starts to get around 50%, that's a pretty good indication that you've got tissue dys dysoxia. One poor man's way to look at that is to get an SCVO2 and just subtract that from an SAO2. And that'll get you a ballpark. The technical way to really do this is to do a CA2 minus CVO2 divided by the CaO2. But this is the poor man's way, and that's the way I'll eyeball it if I'm really concerned about this. And I think most of you just looking at the SCVO2, you don't really need to even know this. You kind of can tell right away where you're at. But if, you, if somebody came to you and they were challenging your decision to transfuse, this I think is one of the few perhaps more physiologic tra transfusion triggers we have. Calculating the oxygen extraction ratio and at least talking about that rather than saying, well, the hemoglobin fell below 7.1 and it's going to get lower, so I just transfused. Rather than really thinking about this in terms of what are we really doing in terms of an endpoint of oxygen delivery. So I think the O2 extraction ratio uh, is another endpoint and something you can think about. And it's also a way to integrate your SCVO2. Okay, lactate. Everybody knows about lactate, and Dr. Scalia talked a lot about this in his talk, and I, I think he did he covered this. Uh, he's, he is the expert in this. But I do just want to remind you that it's not all anaerobic. There's a lot of things that increase lactate. If you've got a patient on epinephrine, we all know about that relationship. Um, um, if you've got patients with you know, liver clearance or in, in the epinephrine, does anybody know the mechanism for that? That sometimes shows up as board exam questions. Anybody aware of that? I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot. If you know, you can just blurt it out. So it has to do with the sodium potassium ATPase. It's actually not just that they're, you're, you're really, it could be that you're causing splanchnic vasoconstriction, but it really is um, the epidependent beta-2 receptor, which is sodium potassium ATPase, and can actually, and that whole relationship actually increase lactate. So your lactate may not, you may think you're moving forward with your endpoints, but your lactate's still kind of high. It may not be that that's just because you're anaerobically, you're anaerobic. It could be that you're because you're, you're on epi. There's a mechanism that's been well described. 
This is another one, though, in sepsis, and this is mostly tried, trying to gear this to be a little more specific to, to trauma, um, traumatic shock. But, you know, when patients get septic, their proven dehydrogenase gets inhibited. Gram negatives are notorious for this. And that is going to elevate your lactate by shunting it over and outside, getting it won't even get into the Krebs cycle and get to the electron transport chain. So this is another mechanism where you can get an elevated lactate, and by addressing the infection, that's what's going to lower it. So there's a lots of things that elevate your lactate, but it is it is one of the easiest things we can get, and it's it is very well established in terms of traumatic shock that if you're not clearing your lactate, and you heard about this, if you're not clearing your lactate, that is a very poor prognostic sign. We still, you'll still see this in the textbooks, the type A versus type B um, elevated lactate. Most are actually somewhere in between, is what I would encourage you to think about. But the traditional classic teaching is if it's true hypoxia, that's type A, and other causes, and that diagram I just showed you are type B. Um, <clears throat> this is one of the uh, more famous, you've probably seen this, the silver day graph. So all this is saying is if, if you don't clear lactate by 24 hours, or even sooner, if you don't start to see a trend in clearing lactate, then you could be in really bad trouble, and your, your chance of going into multiple organ failure goes up higher. We, we believe that pushing this out into the pre-hospital environment may be of utility. So getting a lactate in the field, that's the next study we have going on, along with a lot of other parameters. So that study's about to start, and we're only going to do it on the helicopters because um, that's a a population of medics we can control. But we really think, you know, zero to six or some data, just getting that early lactate and getting a delta lactate early on, even from the true, there could be some changes there that we might be able to pick up. So we believe that lactate, and this goes all the way back to Dr. Scalia's animal labs days, is a very valuable biomarker. Um, you just have to be aware there's a lot of things that can confound it. But if you're not clearing it, clearly bad. And the correlation between arterial and venous, this comes up. So a lot of, there's some places that talk about, you know, not getting a venous lactate. The only time I think you have to be careful with that, and I've tried to, I tried to search last night for some more literature on this, and there is a little bit. I'm not quoting it, but so if they're septic, you get vasodilation with sepsis, and you could wind up with an artificially high lactate. Or if you take it from a prolonged attempt to try to get the lactate from a venous stick, you could wind up with a high lactate. But since the 70s, if you're able to get a pretty quick venous sample, the correlation coefficient just for just FYI is like you can see, you don't have to be a statistician to see this, it's well over 0.9. So they, there is a good correlation if you can obtain a timely venous lactate. If you have a central line, it's a no-brainer. It doesn't have to be arterial in all cases. What about lactate versus SCVO2? And I gotta tell you, I think, um, maybe, maybe I still do misunderstand it, I don't know, but I, I know when I was a fellow, I was very much into the papers that were lactate versus CO2. And there was a battle that raged on in the literature with this, with a pro-con, a very famous pro-con that was published um, between two prominent intensivists where they went back and forth and were arguing which, which one's better. I think the answer is, and the answer comes from this Joshi paper, which I do, I do believe I gave you for the, for the notes for this. Um, I believe the answer is in this paper. I think this is a very elegantly described paper where they talk about how you can use both. Both give you information, okay? Got a central line, you can get an SCVO2. If you're normal, normal, you're in good shape, you continue to monitor. Now what about if the lactate is normal and your SCVO2 is starting to drop? 
That requires, I think, a free exam, a volume assessment. And you've got to decide to yourself, wait a minute, at this point, maybe we're at a vasopressor stage, maybe we need fluids, again, depending on the type of shock and where you are in the spectrum of resuscitation. But this can be very helpful. I'll tell you, what I used to do all the time is way over here, I would see an elevated SCVO2 and just write it off as a lab error. Actually, most at the previous institution I was, it almost always was a lab error because they didn't even know how to do SCVO2s in the lab properly. We had to go down there and actually go over that with them. So it was a lab error, but I think most of the time our lab gets this right. If this is elevated and your lactate is still going up, I'm not saying to do this, and I don't do this in my practice. I do know a few colleagues here that have tried this, but you may hear more about this. And actually, there, this has been known for a while, and the Europeans actually will give vasodilators selectively in certain select doses. Something to think about. I think the important thing here for me is when I see this, I worry about the microcirculation because I worry that you know our delivery is not perfect here. We're not achieving our endpoints that we need to achieve. Am I going to give a vasodilator? I still don't feel very comfortable with that, although I will acknowledge that there is literature on that. So I don't ignore it anymore. I used to just wire off and say, don't even check it anymore. It's just, it's just a lab error. I think you have to pay attention to this. And I think using both together can be really helpful. Where I also think it's helpful is that you can really identify an O2 deficit by looking at the lactate. If that's going up and your SCVO2 is going down, you can titrate some things in the ventilator. Again, trying to get at that SAO2 to improve your oxygen delivery. You may need a transfusion. Again, think about an O2 extraction ratio, quick calculation. You got the data right there in your hands. Maybe some inotropes. Again, combining that with other upstream in the pyramid things to look at in terms of volume assessment and cardiac output stroke volume assessment. So I think this table, if there's one take-home point, I think this is a very helpful table. At least it is for me. I think this puts it together. And I think this pretty much puts the rest most of the arguments that I think are a bit superfluous about lactate versus SCVO2, I think they both have value in critically ill patients. That's my, my conclusion. Uh, see, what, see what conclusions you come to in your, your practice. Base excess is another thing we look at, and I'll go through this really quickly. I do want to point you to this, lec this uh, article, which I think is probably the best review of base excess I've ever seen. It was in Journal of Trauma a couple years ago. Uh, I think, again, I can email this to you. Just email me and I'll, I'll send it to you. But base excess is the proper term. We use base deficit, probably more semantics, but the proper term is base excess. Um, and really, you know, when you start winding up with an imbalance here from more acids building up, it's, it's really quite simple. This is the amount of base you need to return the plasma back to a normal pH. It's that simple. So if you've got something that's affecting that balance, then that should alert you that you have a problem. If you have a base excess of 6 or less, okay, so a negative base excess, we would call this a deficit, again, semantics, that is worrisome. And I've got at least six studies here that have, I think, shown that pretty, pretty well. So this is not a good thing. If you have an ABG and you think you're moving kind of in the right direction, but yet your base excess as a snapshot is not quite where you want it, this could be a problem. Um, and if you don't normalize this, just like with Lactate, we've got multiple studies that show increased multi-organ failure, mortality, and even ARDS risk. So base excess that's not going in the right direction is an important endpoint, more at the microcirculation uh, that you have to look at. But, it, but it's fraught with a lot of confounders. If you've got hypercaloremia, maybe they let loose with the saline. We're getting away from saline, but maybe somebody in an outside hospital still doesn't read that literature, and they pounded them with six, seven liters of saline. 
Um, okay, that could be something that could confound this. Alcohol, which we see all the time, can confound base excess. If it's a venous sample, unlike arterial and venous lactate, this one does not correlate that good. This has a standard deviation that's almost near two. So that could be the difference. If you got a negative four versus a negative six, I just showed you negative six is really the kind of the magic number that where you really could be in some big trouble, at least based on the retrospective studies. This is something that, unfortunately, we really probably do need it to come from an arterial source. But I still think base excess, this is Dr. Dutton, the way he describes it. So he talks about a shock curve. And there's no units on this curve. This is not testable. And I'm not even sure if I really drew it right, but this is the way he describes it. He sees base excess as almost like a snapshot of the area under the shock curve, so to speak. Whereas lactate gives you a little bit more of a sense of the true dose of shock. That's what Dr. Dutton would call it, the dose of shock. And I think you heard Dr. Scalia as well talk about this a little bit. Base excess might give you a bit of a snapshot. We can frequently get ABGs. Nowadays, though, we can get a lactate off ABGs. So I, I don't know. It depends on you know um, what laboratory stuff you have available. But this could give you, I, I think the best way to think about it is a snapshot in terms of your resuscitation. So just briefly, a couple other quick things here to, to talk about. We're, again, we're at the base of that pyramid talking about things that we want to look at for fine-tuning our resuscitation. We've addressed our DO2 problems, we think. Now we're really trying to look at the microcirculation. This is one device that, quite frankly, I really don't know if it holds promise. I have no uh, vested interest with this, no disclosures about this. It is a device we're going to be employing in the pre-hospital environment, and I'll show you why in a second. It's tissue oximetry. Concept, you know, conceptually, this is really appealing to us because it's a non-invasive monitor that goes on the thinner eminence, um, and it's non-invasive, and it can give us an immediate Again, snapshot, snapshot of what might be going on in the microcirculation. It's not the same exact technology as pulse oximetry. In fact, you don't need a pulse, and it's supposed to be not affected by hypothermia. This is, the, I think, the paper that really got me thinking about this with Dr. Beakley during one of the resuscitations in one of our previous conflicts. So they had an ability to look at this while they were resuscitating patients. And if you look at this, this is a patient who's really sick. I mean, STO2 it should normally be above 75, at least above 65. This patient came in 30, diving down to 20. They start transfusing. It immediately jumps up. But then they start lagging down. They're giving more units. This patient wound up getting a very a super massive transfusion, essentially, uh, and even got factor 7 because they were still using that then. But you can see that they were able to really, I don't know how much this was predictive. That's the question we have. But at least it's one more marker that you might be off. And it, again, it's appealing because it's so non-invasive. I'm not sure if this is going to work. We are going to be putting this out in the field as well to, again, try to get our arms around these patients that, are, that may be in early shock that we're missing because they're in compensated shock. We don't know the answer. But this is one example in wartime where there may have been some uh, ability to, to look at this as a predictive non-invasive monitor. The other one that Dr. Scalia talked about a couple weeks ago is sublingual capnometry. Very appealing. Uh, we are going to be getting one of these to trial, hopefully in the truth, soon. I don't know. Trial meaning we're going to put it on some patients and see if we can understand what it's telling us and how feasible it is to use. There's some good studies on it. A very good review by Dr. Merrick in 2003. Another one more, a little more recent in 2007. It's been out for a while. The problem was, as you heard Dr. Scalia talk about, there was some FDA concerns with heating tissues, tissue damage, and infections. So 
um, they believe they've, they've, they've surmounted those problems and we can now use this technology, there is a device. The way it works is, I won't explain the physiology of it, but it's basically a, um, a dark field uh, microscopy. There's a bunch of different light wavelengths that get shot down into the tissue bed. But the bottom line is this is supposed to give us some indication of microcirculation. And it looks at the difference in your CO2 uh, between arterial and venous samples at the tissue level. So sophisticated technology that still not ready for prime time, but you know, and, and, and this is another review in 2004 where they looked at this asking the question, does the answer lie into the tongue? This would be a nice non-invasive monitor to really help us understand what's going on with the microcirculation. And they did see, in most cases, by looking at delta CO2s, um, that there was a change in terms of being able to detect patients that were still in shock that they might have otherwise missed. So a good review if you want to look at that. Um, again, not for prime time, and we don't have that available, but one other thing. The last thing, real quickly, and anyone who's worked with me knows I'm a big fan of the TEGS and, and even the Rotem. We don't use the Rotem here regularly except in cardiac, but in the military, we do have Rotem available depending on where we may be deployed. Um, I can give you the handout on this. I, I'm not going to talk about how to interpret this again right now. I just want to put this out there as, you know, you'll hear me talk about this and write this in my notes even. I'll say we're going to employ a TEG-based approach to determine you know, what elements of the coagulation cascade we can, we can, we can use. And there's, there's some really good recent examples I can show you. Uh, and I don't want to steal the thunder of others that I think you might have talk. You have a really good TEG guy who comes and does talks. So I'll leave that to them. But I really am a firm believer that this is the way to really look at, you know, your patient in terms of an endpoint for resuscitation. And there's lots of data to look at this and find out exactly where you are. I can tell you that, you know, this is, the difference between giving maybe a unit of cryo versus giving platelets versus back in the day we would have just given this patient a ton of FFP and not known what we were really doing, looking at conventional stuff like PTT and INR. I think TEG is invaluable. I really do. And I think you can, I know you can save a lot of money and I think you can affect better patient outcomes by keeping patients away from harmful blood products when you don't really need them. Where this comes up frequently sometimes is in neuro. They'll want us to hit the patient with FFP to get the INR and drive it down to extremely low levels. And there's data that shows you can't even do that if you can give all the FFP in eternity. And if they've got heart failure, then you're going to wind up with volume overload. PCCs is a whole other talk. But if you're using FFP, it could be very harmful. It's really nice to get a tag, bring that to the table, and say, look, guys, I think we're OK here. The tag shows that this patient is making a robust clot. I think we've done a good job resuscitating. We've reached our endpoint, I think. And you know, I don't think we need to give any more FFP. Yeah, the INR is 1.6, 1.7. It's not perfect, but the tag sure shows that this patient's making a clot. So that, to me, can be very valuable and often will help you win that argument when they're trying to write for four more units of FFP that the patient does not need and is harmful. There's, there's protocols on how to use this that I can give you that really go through. And then last, <clears throat> in terms of how to use the tag, a lot of places, in fact, here we're not quite there yet. We're still doing proper trial type one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one resuscitation because it's easy logistically for us to get the cooler down and just start doing it. But a lot of places are trying to wean themselves off that one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio and get right to a viscoelastic-based resuscitation approach. And that's where we'd like to be here if we, can, and we have the rapid tags now so we can get a tag really quickly and it comes right on our screen and we can make decisions right there in real time in the OR now, which is helpful. 
We haven't gotten this out as well to all of our other units, I think, yet. We need to work on that. But this is the way the Europeans do this. The folks in Denmark, Dr. Johansson, who's really a great resuscitationist, will use um, very early on, they'll get a tag almost immediately. We're, again, this is something we're thinking that maybe we get this in the field and really just follow serial tags. I know in the true, we've gotten a lot better with getting tags. And I know that you're using them to you know, make decisions about your patients. But it's an endpoint. So, all right, I've tried to show you the triangle. I don't know how to help you remember that. I, I, I think about that triangle, and I'll show it to you here in a second, you know. Um, Ask me if I care! Ask me if I care! I don't care if you know jujitsu! Take one more step and I'll knock you out! Line uh. Awesome. <laughs> so, anyway, I like, the I like the martial arts. I'm trying to give you a visual of the triangle. It's one of the most effective moves we've got. It's very hard to get out of it. If you get trapped in it, you're pretty much hosed. And uh, you'll be unconscious quickly. But the triangle is, uh, you know, again, tipping it on its side. We don't want to obviously choke our patients out, but we do want to help them. And uh, I think that this is something maybe you can consider in your practice. There's a lot of data here, but if you organize it from the top down, yes, you start with your vital signs, you move to oxygen delivery, and you start thinking about microperfusion and how we can fine tune things and really look at what's going on, hopefully at the microcirculatory level. I, I hope that you find this somewhat helpful. Um, so that's all I've got. Um, happy to take any questions. If there are any. Do you guys throw out your SCVO2s a lot? Or do you pay attention to that? Or is there anybody who's, uh, who finds that that's often misconstrued as a lab error? It may be a lab error a lot of times. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? No? Dr. Murthy, my hero. Yeah, so just again, to because Dr. Murthy's points, which are excellent, are not going to uh, be transmitted. So just to repeat, if I can summarize if I'm cor if correctly. So this is, a, this is, we do use the term endpoints, but Dr. Murthy proposes maybe we should consider pivot points. I think that's an excellent, I think that's an excellent point. <laughs> um, I mean, um, endpoints is, and all the papers on endpoints kind of have this linear approach. And I think that's what you're saying. It's, it's not a linear approach. You're not, you're not ever done. I, I think going back to that first uh, thing with the parachutes, you know, the thing I worry about is undershooting and not, obviously you have to have the problem fixed, but I, I, I still worry about undershooting and I also worry about, you know, going on for too long and over resuscitating. There's actually there's also this talk and maybe it relates to you about de-resuscitation. So I don't know, if, I mean, but I, I guess if I were to summarize what you're saying, you're saying this is more of a spectrum, it's not so linear and endpoints may be misconstrued. I don't maybe you want to come up here and, and do this so we can get this online. Yeah. Well, that's the classic I mean, that's that goes back to the classic definition of shock. I think the point that I'm trying to make with that is um, if you let that go on too long, you're in big trouble. You will you will enter an irreversible state. But again, it, it's um, I don't and I don't think there's one any one thing. I think I don't know. This is the way we think about it. I may, maybe maybe there's fine tuning. I'm sure there is. But 
you know, I think to have an approach where you're somewhat organized in terms of making sure that you're thinking about this stuff. Maybe it's the order could be changed. Maybe the whole pyramid needs to be rearranged. We don't know the answer, but when I read through the literature and see this versus that, and you, it gets very confusing as to what you're really trying to target as, as a quote pivot point or end point. So I, I don't know. This is one way that I think, um, I mean, these are things that you're going to want to achieve at some point for sure, but the question is the evolution of the, the underlying process, I guess. It's, it's very dynamic. Yes, sir. Uh, a few things, Sam. First of all, thank you. Um, it's a great talk. Uh, the, it's funny you, you lay out this sort of semi-algorithmic approach to addressing the concepts of uh, basically shock. And I, I do that same thing. That's how I teach the residents and fellows is basically that, you know, auction delivery, auction consumption, auction delivery, you know, arterial auction contents, you, you know, I think actually physically writing it out and um, in that undifferentiated shock patient, I suggest that um, for those of you who are still in the learning process, just crossing them off as you go. And you're, many times you're left with what you believe may be a, uh, the underlying cause of what's going on, or the physiologic cause, not what the actual trigger of that physiologic cause uh, may vary, but I, I, I like the idea of trying to, you know, simplify, um, make it a much more, um, you know, uh, swallowable, you know, when dealing with this problem and it's in front of you, like the way you, you show it. Number two, um, so if, for those of you that, uh, that Sam referred to that debate, that pro-con debate, it's a chest a few years ago, it's Alan Jones and Manny Rivers, great talk, uh, great back and forth. Got a little, uh, you know, um, snarky at times, but it's fun to read. Um, and really, uh, really gets into physiology, and um, you can learn a lot from it. Um, now, other thing that I don't know with with microcirculatory dysfunction, something that bothers me in managing that is that um, I feel like there's still so much left to be understood, and when we don't fully understand it, how can we fully treat it? Now, when we think about, uh, that's the way I think about it, with ARDS, you know, we know systemic vasodilators don't work to improve oxygenation mm -hmm. because maybe some of that vasoconstriction is appropriate. You're trying to improve VQ matching, and when you, you know, um, mm -hmm. decrease that appropriate vasoconstriction, you have increased shunting. Um, now we know with sepsis you have um, microcirculatory dysfunction. You know at the tissue level, it's just disorganized many times. You know where that um, uh, dysfunction mm -hmm. occurs. Now um, it's so hard to know um, if let's say dobutamine or vasodilators that last mm -hmm. um, uh, step in, in the Joshi paper that you uh, mm -hmm. referred was uh, is really going to improve. Uh, vasodilation at the target vessels that mm -hmm. are the problematic ones. And number two, even if you do, are, can we, uh, how much of the problem is really an oxygen extraction problem at the cellular level based on all the different yeah. things? That, so we may improve the sort of macro delivery of mm -hmm. what these um, uh, dysfunctional um, capillaries, but are we actually going to improve that um, oxygen? Um, you know, provision to the mitochondria themselves. Uh, yeah, I know. I, an answer to that, but just I my my whole point is, I mean, I think we're still. We you're right. We don't have 
we don't have the technology to really even understand what's really going on outside of what we're doing, some people are doing in the lab, but that's not at the bedside and helpful to us. But I think that, um, I guess the point I'm trying to make with some of this is that, you know, the vital signs may be normal, top of the pyramid, but yet the patient still could be in trouble at the microcirculatory level. The question then is, what do we do about it? I mean, what, okay, so what if we have an elevated lactate in SCV2? Are we going to really give vasodilators like some people are doing? May or may not. These are the very questions that uh, hopefully keep us in business in academia. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> this is, the, I, I still feel like, okay, whatever, however this has been organized, it's still very much the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that we, we need to understand what's really going on with our patients and how to treat them. And, you know, and I think using this for septic versus traumatic shock is also problematic because the, the pathophysiology is different. As Dr. Scalia talked about, you know, shock is shock, but there are different pathophysiologic mechanisms here. And when you've got shunting with sepsis, that's different than vasoconstriction with hemorrhagic shock. So it, it is a question of what do we really do about it at, at the end of it. And, and the answer, I don't know if we know the answer. I think having a global approach, though, I mean, we can't do nothing. You can't just sit there and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. I think you still have to have some kind of organized approach to try to get at some of these problems. And unfortunately, in 2015, we're probably still in the dark ages with a lot of this. But hopefully it'll get better. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you. Thank you.